And now for the major announcement. Da, 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 da. Oh, Marcus, for years, listeners have been urging with us, pleading with us, begging us to run wellness and couch events in their own hometown and not just in Melbourne. Well, get ready, folks, because in 2018, there's not one, not two, but three major events coming your way. The Wellness Base Camp is our brand new one-day event featuring your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters in your very own home state. In 2018, we are coming to Brisbane, Adelaide and Kiama, just south of Sydney, for one inspirational day of health and wellness. Oh, incredible lineups to MP. We've got the Up for Chatters, we've got Joe Witten, we've got Fuad, we've got Kale Brock, Audra Starkey, the incredible Marcus Pierce, Brett Hill and so many more. Now seats are strictly limited to these events. The Wellness Base Camp is not a big Wellness Summit 1,000 people job, so do not muck around. No, you've got to get in quick, MP. The early bird two-for-one tickets are now available. Best Christmas present ever. To book your tickets and for all the information, head to thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo and Dr. Kim Benton. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bogamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today's back chat will cover the pillar of moving. Today, my special co-host is Kim Fenton. Hey, Kim, how are you going? Good, thank you, Paul. How are you? Very good. Now, we've got a bit of a special guest tonight, haven't we? We do, very much so. It's one of those sort of things where, I suppose, from a personal perspective, I watched this gentleman uh, show his craft for the Carlton Football Club during the uh, 90s and 2000s and uh, certainly one that uh, he certainly made a big presence at the the Carlton Football Club. Have you come across this person before, Kim? I have. I have. Being a former Victorian, I am a little bit familiar. Excellent. So without further ado, let's introduce Anthony Kudafidis, or as we know him as Kuda. Kuda played 278 games at the Carlton Footy Club, retiring in 2007. He was, a, he was a premiership player in 1995. He was a club captain, won two best and fairest at Carlton and was also an All-Australian on two occasions in 1995 and 2000, as well as being an Australian Football Hall of Fame inductee in 2014. Hi, Kuda, how are you going? Good, thanks, Paul and Kim. Thanks very much for allowing me to speak to you guys. No worries. What are you up to today, Kuda? What's been on the agenda? Believe it or not, a bit of a lazy day. I took my son out to uh, his basketball training in Melbourne Tigers at 8 a.m., so early start on a Sunday morning, and we finished at 10. But after that, I've basically been at home doing a bit of reading, uh, catching up on things that I haven't been able to do in the past, Paul. So I've sort of said to the family today, because I've been that busy lately, I just need a little bit of time for myself. So it's been a great, relaxing day. Excellent. So, Terrific. Kim? Well, welcome on the show, Anthony. Oh, Kuda, I should say. I'm not allowed to use real names. <laughs> now, um, I just want to go back into the past a little bit with you, first of all. You made a big decision in your adolescent years. You were state under-16 high-jump champion and also competed in the 110-metre hurdles and the discus. And then you made the choice to switch from track and field athletics to Australian rules football. 
Was that a hard decision and what influenced it? It was one of the tough decisions in my life, really, that uh, moment, you know, at such a young age. It was at the age of eight that I fell in love with uh, football. I got introduced to it. Um, both my parents migrated here in the 60s. My father was born in Egypt, but of Greek background. My mum was born in Italy. They met here. And uh, when at the local primary school I went to, I had an older brother who was 13 months older than I, and we got introduced to AFL football. And we fell in love with that game. So at the age of eight, I went down a local footy club, and that's where I started um started playing the game and in that following summer my brother took up athletics and I sort of was a little bit hesitant I was a bit of a shy kid and I watched him compete for about six months before I had the courage or three months I should say before I had the courage to get out there and compete myself and I was quite a natural at it so by the time I was grade five I was state high jump champion grade six representative so when I was 14 I became national high jump champion so I don't know, Wikipedia needs to update that, I think. Under-15s and under-16 national high jump champ. And then Tim Forsyth came along. And, of course, Tim represented Australia in the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games and he won a bronze medal. So when I lost my title, he jumped 2 meters 16, I jumped 208. But at that championship there, I won the Australian 110-meter hurdles title with an Australian record. So I was quite quite good at, at a lot of events. And I won many, many multiple multiple events, like a decathlon. And uh, the other day, Athletics Australia interviewed me because, because the Pacific School Games are on uh, next month in Adelaide, and they were reflecting back and wanted to talk to me. I don't even remember winning that, but they said I did. I, I doubt I did, but anyway, it's in the records, <laughs> I think. So, But the great thing was Jai Tarima, who won a silver medal at the Sydney Olympics uh, for the long jump. He jumped, I think, 841 at that championship. He uh, wrote a comment under that article and said, uh, I remember competing against you in the under-16s or under-18s with Calfon, which would have been the under-16s, but by the time I was under-18s, I was already a Calvin football club. And he said, the uh, most talented athlete I competed against. So, you know, I was able to beat guys like him in the hurdles and decathlon and all these other great athletes uh, who went on to represent, you know, Australia after that, the Olympics. But I also had a great football career too. And, uh, you know, I played at the age of 14, got a letter from the Carlton Football Club. I went down there in their junior squads under 15 to play two years there, represented Victoria, and then after that played under-19s at Carlton and made the uh, – I played for Victoria also, made the uh, All-Australian team that's in our back, and then went on to uh, uh, get the phone call from the Carlton Football Club, basically, from Ian Collins, and he called me up and said, Cooter, we want to offer you a contract. So I went in there and they offered me a three-year deal it was only $7,800, and it wasn't about the money for me. It was about that dream I had as a young kid to, to play AFL footy. So I was absolutely honoured to uh, sign that contract. And that, from that point on, I basically then gave away my beloved athletics. And uh, I don't have any regrets, but there's always those thoughts that come through your head and think, geez, you know, what it could have might have been if I continued, you know, along the athletics uh, pathway. So it's- yeah, a really hard decision. So it's, it's interesting, Kurt, when you talk about all that, because at the end of the day, you, you, so you didn't really have a father who perhaps you loved football who guided you through to become a footballer AFL-wise. Is that what I'm understanding? Because that often is the pathway where we get an interest in the game. That, that wasn't the case in your situation? No, I had, I had no idea about the game. My father sort of <laughs> followed it a little. We were never allowed to watch the replays on a Saturday night because it was only, you know, the television three channels, only that one opportunity to watch uh, replays we were never allowed to watch it but my father I guess because football was such you know it's uh, like a, a religion here in Melbourne and I guess when he was growing up going to work it was all the ethnics and the Australians and everyone voted for the football team so he knew a little bit about it my mum 
really didn't like the game and didn't want us to play because she thought it was too rough and tough for us. But my brother and I committed to it, had a great, beautiful Australian family that took us to the games and back that first year. But then from second year onwards, mum and dad uh, came along and they were my two greatest supporters. And there's no way known I could have gone on to play senior footy without them. But did they teach me anything about the game? No, Paul. <laughs> my father played a little bit of basketball as a young kid in Egypt. Apparently he was good. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, he was little bits and pieces he would say to me that now, you know, reflecting back, I can understand what he meant by him. So he had some sort of knowledge about sport. I guess as a young kid, I never really listened to him. I just went out and had fun. And what I did do, and like a lot of us kids, you know, back in growing up in the 70s and 80s, all we did was play sport and we were never indoors. And the area I grew up in, which was Laylor Thomas, down the northern part of Melbourne, it was just flooded with migrants and, and young families. And so we, we, I, we had some of the most incredible sports people that I was, you know, associated with that I became friends with. And we just all went to battle and competed, and that's how I really I learned my craft. You know, Kim, it's interesting what Kuda's talking about here because you see a lot of uh, elite athletes, especially in their adolescents, have very pressured parents. You know, we see that at really high levels, and, and then you see that trickle through when they go from their adolescence at high levels. I suppose I think of perhaps a few tennis players that we all know about and uh, who've had strong parental influence, especially in their sport, whereas it's interesting what Kuda talks about here where... In some ways, perhaps he, you know, he just enjoyed the fo- his footy. There wasn't that sort of parental pressure in that adolescence. What, what do you think, Kim? Yeah, well, the drive comes from within, I guess. Is that right, Kuda? Yeah, the great thing about me, and my parents, is that in particular, my mum should always say, "You're very good." You know, even if I had a bad day, they'd always say, "No, no, you're good." And then, you're a good player. You can play, no problem. You know, it's like <laughs> it was. When I think back, I'm a little bit harsher on my son because I see and I pick up the deficiencies that he has and I go, well, you might think you play good, but here are some of the areas that you can improve on in order to get better. But I've got to sometimes think that my parents, all they did was tell me how good I was and even if I had a bad day or whatever, they'd be there to support me and say, don't worry, everyone made mistakes today. And they were just unbelievable. And uh, and as we go in through my career, you'll be able to hear that uh, in times of need, they were always there for me. That's why I always thank them every single day. And my two brothers, that without my family support, I I don't know how I could have made it because it's a tough, long road to success. And although I was very talented, there was moments when I thought I wasn't going to be able to make it. But I had my incredible parents there by my side. But you're totally right. I see parents go so hard at their kids. And I had a very good friend of mine who was overly, you know, really incredibly talented. He was like second best in Australia, 100, 200. And, you know, had all these things. He was so blessed as a natural athlete. But I think his father put that much pressure on him to compare him to me that at the end of the day he just faltered because of that. Instead of you know giving him the love and support and not worrying about that, unfortunately he wasn't able to go on and fulfil his dreams. Do you think that your parents gave you that unconditional support because you were so hard on yourselves that yourself that they had to balance that out a little bit? I'm not sure. I probably, I probably was a little bit hard and maybe, yeah, because I, I, I didn't really have a big head or anything or ego. I never thought, that, you know, I could easily make it in playing football or to the Olympics as athletics, maybe. Possibly that was one. I always had my brother to keep me grounded as well. He was 13 months older and always that little bit better. And so I just really, you know, had to go out and compete against him and that as well. So, yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a good point. I've never really asked, you know, mum and dad's no longer, you know, with me now, but never really asked mum about that. But my mum always reminds me of that I never always played well. And so if I'm, you know, going a little bit hard on my son, she'd always say, don't think your father was good every time, you know, he went out there and played too. So she's been good for my son also. So, Kuda, when we look at it, I mean, you're, you, you sort of bled Carlton blood for, 
for many years. I mean, I mean, you finished when you were 34. What age did you actually start at Carlton, in effect? At the age of 14, really, but just in their development squad. So I was still at the Lalo Football Club then, and I loved Lalo. I never, ever imagined myself leaving at one point. I guess if it wasn't for my parents to give me that little nudge, I would have easily just stayed and played and hung out with the Lalo boys there because, you know, all your friends are there, and I love the club. We had a family environment, so I, I really adored playing there. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a tough time, really, Paul, you know, going through that. But, yeah, it was... Uh, you know, I, I know at the end of the day I made the right decision. At the age of 14, I still broke for Collingwood. But I Sorry, stop, 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 stop. Stop the podcast. Yes, well, I did say that. I know I shouldn't have said that word. I apologise. <laughs> Collingwood. Let me just rewind the podcast oh, a little. Gosh, okay. no, I learned, I'm, I'm I doing a little victory them. dance here. Oh, gee. Uh, Kim, don't get me. Don't smile too much. I learned to just dislike them with a passion. Now. So it's all right, Paul. Okay, Found phew. brain at the age of 19, mate. Oh, phew. That's okay. That's all right. We'll continue then. But in effect, I suppose, Kira, you were a cow then for 20 years then, 20 years of your life in effect, if you're yeah, 14 to 34. Yeah. It's a long time. But, I mean, what would you say would have been the your, your highlight account? Well, the highlight was definitely the, the premiership I won at the age of 22. Well, I mean, that there was something I, I think it was – I could never even imagine. I just would have been thrilled to have played one AFL game. I, I could never imagine. I thought the grand finals and premierships were almost surreal. But what I did find is that I walked in, into this environment at this football club that had the most incredible culture of success. And throughout the 60s, in particular 70s and 80s, they dominated the competition with so many premierships. So I walked in with an incredible leader in John Elliott, and he set the standard for us, and he let it be known that we were here to win premierships, and if you wanted to be remembered, you had to you had to win premierships. So there was always that pressure playing for the Carlton Football Club, and we had tremendous leaders around there. So I was very fortunate to walk in to that football club. I played 38 under-19 games, and I played 50 reserve games too, Paul. So I, I did... Spent a lot of my years, mm. more than half of my life, well, not now because I'm 44, but more than half of life that I can remember because as a young kid you don't remember too much, they're at that wonderful football club. Fantastic. And I, and I think if I could just go down a little bit of self-indulgence here and go down memory lane just a little bit, Kim, and just ask Kuda about one specific quarter of football, and he played thousands of quarters of football, <laughs> but this one specific quarter of football, which gets a lot of Fox highlights, we understand, was uh, the preliminary final in 1999, where if I set the scene just a little bit, where Carlton had, uh, were playing in this game and weren't expected to even get close to Essendon. Essendon had an outstanding year. and uh, But, of course, on the day, on a final, anything can happen. And uh, I think we were 11 points down at three-quarter time, Kurt, I think. so. We were, we were, and, and they had a bit of momentum, I think. Is that right? At that point? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but in the third quarter, Essendon played the game that they should have played all day long because they were really the, the outright favourites, and so they should have been. I think we played them once or twice. We definitely played them once. I'm not sure we played them twice that year, but I remember them absolutely dominating and thrashing us that year. So we came into those final series of losing, I think, the Brisbane Lions, but the way that it set up was we got that second week chance to go and play and it actually had to be in Melbourne and we played West Coast and we found incredible form from that game and so we went into the prelim final with a little bit of confidence but what I do remember Paul and Kim was that John Elliott walking into the chains before the game and walking around and just saying I've got a funny feeling about today 
And it just, I know myself, I thought back to the cold of history in the past. I said, do these guys know something I don't know? Uh, I, you know, that I think I don't know. <laughs> so they, he gave me that belief to, to think that all these times that the Carlton Football Club were able to win when they weren't expected to win, in particularly in finals, down so many times against the Carlton Football Club and going out winning premierships and things like that. So I think it, gave, it just gave us that little bit of an edge. And we know in AFL footy that a little percent here and there from a couple of players adds up to a lot. And we just got off to an incredible start that day in that first half. And we, we come, I was coming off thinking, we could be in a grand final here, but in the third quarter, SNY would just put it on. And they turned it on and kicked so many goals. And they probably were poor, like what you said, 11 points in front at three-quarter time. And then, of course, the last quarter came. I was hoping that uh, Parker or Wayne Britton would say, you're in the midfield, Kurt. It didn't come at three-quarter time, believe it or not. But the start of the last quarter, about two minutes in or three minutes in, the runner came to me. Said, Kurt, you're in the midfield. And I thought, you, you beauty, here I go. And so we had a great last quarter. And uh, we're very lucky to win Paul and Kim because Mark McCurry, who was such a superb player for us in the football club, he had a shot on goal with about a minute and a half or a minute to go. And I reckon nine times out of ten he would have kicked it. But just that occasion, for whatever reason, it just went past that goal post into the points. And then uh, whoever was kicked it out and Dean Wallace had that ball. And uh, if he had got around Fraser Brown, I was standing there anyway, but I don't know if I could have caught him, but Fraser Brown pulled that incredible tackle on him. And uh, I think it was Justin Murphy that got the ball on to Brett Radden, who then kicked it on to Justin Murphy. And it will go down, apart from all the premierships, I dare say that game there will go down as uh, one of the all-time great games that the Cullen supporters would never forget. No, absolutely. And, Kim, you know Andrew Murphy, a good friend of, common friend of ours, and Andrew and I were uh, at, at that game. And uh, I still remember our sort of disbelief and, the, you know, the, the just the the... The highs and lows of footy, there it was. I mean, the Carlton crowd were just in a state of absolute euphoria and then the Essendon crew were just obviously in, in absolute deflation. And and there's certainly a, a number 43 turned on that last quarter, had multiple possessions and, and really took the took the game by the, by the throat when he was uh, thrown in the middle. And and I think Sticks Kernan said, mate, that was one of the best calls of football ever witnessed ever, I think. I, I think he's quoted as. Is that correct, Kuda? Is that, uh, I think Stephen said that? Yeah. Yeah, that's what he said. I think is the greatest quarter he's ever seen. So you're a modest man. It was very good. Individual player. It's fantastic. (laughs) Well, you've obviously had some high highs in your career, Cooter, but straight after that, I believe, uh, in around 2000, straight after the big the big match with Essendon, you actually suffered a knee injury, a PCL, in 2000, and that was the year where you were one of the front runners for the Brownlow. And um, it's all you miss out on on winning the brown line. And then the following year in 2001, you did your ACL and didn't play again until the end of 2002. How did you cope with those disappointments after coming off such a big high? It was really hard, Kim. It's a great question because uh, I was at the peak of my powers at that stage there and I had an uh, incredible year in 99. Year 2000 was my best year where I was the favourite for the Brownlow and I think I, I performed, I, I played something like 13 best on grounds in a row, which the AFL had never seen previous to that. And I uh, hurt my knee against Essendon, who that year they only lost one game and I think it was the following week to the Bulldogs. So we won 13 games in a row that year and lost to the Bulldogs uh, by just, you know, three points or whatever it was. Then we played Essendon, so they were on top, we were second. There was 90-odd thousand people there just for a normal home and away game. And it was in the first quarter. I went for a mark and Jason Johnson came the other way and just hit me knee. And I never thought too much, but I knew when I landed, I'd go, oh, there's something wrong here. 
So I uh, tore my posterior cruciate, and that should have really been a maybe four to six week injury, but it, it kept me up for nine months for whatever reason. It kept swelling, and I had issues with it, and uh, yeah, it just it slowed me down. And that year there, because because of the Sydney Olympics, the season finished early, and the next season started a bit later. So I was actually able to time it to to be ready for round one, two thousand and one. And by the end of that year, I was in cracking form again. And I, I think I dominated the first week of the final with 36 possessions in the midfield. And uh, that second week, I had two goals up until halftime. It was a scrappy affair that day. And then in the third quarter, I went to kick the ball off the ground. And Matthew Knight, unfortunately, came across my leg. My foot got stuck in there. And I uh, snapped my ACL. And it was like a car, uh, a car, uh, you know, crash, basically, mm. is what the doctor said. So it, it tore my medial and, and everything in my, my, yeah, I was in a bad way. But uh, yeah, it was 2002, the club was struggling that year, we had so many injuries, so we'd come from so much success, and they were sitting on the bottom of the ladder, they wanted me to come back and play, and I played three games with a big brace, so I couldn't move them too well, and the third game I played, it was a bit dewy up in Sydney, and I went to spoil the ball, and I slipped over in Jason Tannington land and whacked straight on my knee, and snapped my medial, so I, I walked off after that, and I, yeah, I knew then I was going, here we go again, I was in trouble, so... Mentally, it was very hard for me, but I just seen it as part of life that, you know, that, that you know, life throws curveballs to you sometimes. And, and I've just got to keep pushing through and getting through these injuries when, you know, like what I said before, I was at the peak of my powers. And, you know, when I look back now at the, the last five years, I certainly wasn't the same player that I was previous to that, but I would never know. I mean, we, you know, we, we had a change of coaches and, you know, the, the training regime changed and it was a very difficult time. Of my career, and I remember once my one of my great mentors, Barry Mitchell, who his son Tom Mitchell plays now at our Hawthorne, he had the most incredible year. But Barry Mitchell told me he said, oh, "You know, Cooty, you just never know how many good games you got left in you." And that was around about the peak of my powers, and and he was spot on. You just never know. And uh, you know, I played my best footy at that stage, and the last five years I wasn't able to play at that sort of level, or even you know, really sort of get close to the level that I played previous to that. I know, Kuda, we'll talk a bit later on about um, Kuda Fippi. You talk about mindset has been important. And, and how did you get through that with that those mental challenges with mindset? Because, you know, that would have been I – mean, we, we talked about the, that, as Kim alluded to, that very big high to – to the to the lows and the challenges, you know, with either from spectators and the pressures on your shoulders because, you know, you were carrying the club, you were around that stage as captain – and you, you know, you just couldn't get out there. And, and even when you got out there, I mean, some of your strong physical attributes with your vertical leap, and that obviously was then taken away having a brace. I mean, that's just a physiological thing. No one can have the same vertical power of, of, of leap if, you, if you're braced. So how did you mentally cope through all that? Oh, it was just, you know, I was saying it was part of life, Paul. Really, I had so many injuries throughout my career. I just kept pushing through and working hard, but... I always reflect back to my father. I, uh, he got ill and got diagnosed with cancer at the end of 1997. I was still living at home. He was my, you know, such a great support and I loved him dearly. I, I looked at him like my, you know, older brother. And, uh, you know, when he got ill, that, that affected me, uh, immensely. But it, it was three months later that he passed away. It was a real quick mm. illness. And, and that time there was the most difficult period of my life. And, now when I look back, you know, was I depressed? Look, yeah, of course I was, but, I, you know, I seen it as part of life that I had to push through and I lost my way for a long time there. I started drinking heavily and didn't really care too much about footy. I didn't really want to play. 
And uh, all I wanted to do was just have my father back. And I would have given away my career and money and contracts and everything just to have him there by my side. But uh, it was a game against Fremantle. It was about round seven or eight, 1998. I finished the game with about, with about five possessions. And uh, it was the worst game I've played almost my entire life. And uh, I had someone handed me the Herald Sun and the back of the pay, the Herald Sun the next day. It was Mike Shambo, an article, Drop Cooter. And so Barry Mitchell, Wayne Britton, my two greatest mentors at the football club, called me into their office and said, Cooter, the way you're going, you'll be out of the system before you realise it. We understand what's happened to your dad, but you've got to make a decision now. And that was the, the pinnacle point right there. Uh, when I went home and I thought of my father, I thought, what an idiot I am, what a fool to go out and just drink and waste my life away. And I knew from that point onwards, my father wanted to see me play the best footy that I possibly could. And I promised to him that day that I would train harder than I ever did before. And that's what I did, Paul. And from that day onwards, I had the three best years, although it got hampered down by injuries. And so I always look at that uh, situation in my life. It took me a good 12 months. You know, I just thought of him every single day. And I think it was 12 months before I could think a day went by where I might not think about him. So it was only time that healed. And, and I always look back now in my life and think, you know what, if I can get through that period of my life when I lost my father at a reasonably young age, I was blessed to have him for as long as I did and blessed uh, to have the most incredible father that now I can get through anything, Paul. So I always I always look back at that and think, you know what, that was the hardest time of my life and whatever, you know, life puts in front of me now, I've just I've got to push through and, uh, you know, just take on the challenge, I guess. Kim, it's interesting, you know, because there's a similar trend here with Kuda with a lot of the other people we've interviewed, that sort of those moments in one's life where you just take stock have some sort of experience have that really humbles you, do you think, Kim, in the context? Yeah, and, and, and and suddenly it puts everything into perspective as well, you know. it's um, We can have the heights of the heights, but end of the day, you know, family is so important and so critical. What do you think, Kim? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think about it in the death of my mother. I was probably around yeah. the same age as you, Kuda. I was 25 when my mum died back in 1996, so similar time frame, and yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a pivotal turning point in your life, and you do end up reevaluating your situation and just working out what's really important to you. And it, it does also cut through the nonsense, so that you start to realise that the small things really aren't that big a deal. So that's always a, a good outcome from it, even though it's a horrible thing to have happen. Hundred percent, Kim. A difficult time, but you know, life always throws like what I see curveballs and, and lessons for you. And I had to grow up and become an adult after that. I'm sure you did the same thing too, Kim. So as hard as it was for me, I'm glad I got myself back on my feet again. And, uh, you know, when I promised my father I was never going to let him down because I'd think that he'd look down at me and think, you know, my son's a liar. So, you know, that there, I often tell my people as I mentor people too, like, if, you know, if if you really set a goal that's really strong and that, you, you know, you can't back down from, you'll be able to achieve anything that you want to achieve and that's what I was able to do there I trained harder than I ever did before never thought that I'll be able to dominate the competition like I did and if it wasn't for that I probably never would have it was a great lesson for me to learn Kuda you've also you're an author you wrote your book interestingly titled Kuda I mean that was uh, a pretty obvious title wasn't it but you described what I think some of the media picked up with with um, some of the challenges that you had with Dennis Pagan as your coach during the, that sort of period where I guess the lean period of the, of the current year in the 2000s and um, and I you know I, I respect the fact you were very honest and authentic about that often uh, those things are kept in house and, and stay in house and you know we have points of differences and differences in opinions but um, what was the situation there with Dennis? 
Yeah, I think with my autobiography, I, I couldn't lie about things. I had to just be upfront and honest in the way that my feelings were and really what was happening in the, in the sanctum there at the Carlton Football Club. I came through such a great period that it was a very sad time for me to see the club in the state that it was. And it almost happened overnight. And so that's why I always say to people, if you've got a good culture, you've got to hold on to that culture and do whatever you possibly can because the Carlton Football Club culture turned overnight. It's been 22 years now since they last won a premiership and a good, what do I say, 15 years? Yeah, 15 years since we've really had, you know, excitement at the club. Yeah, we've had excitement maybe for two or three years, but we haven't even come close to what this football club's all about. And for the players that are there now, they really don't understand how powerful this football club is when it's up and going. Because I know back then in the 90s that we were the most powerful club in the competition. And it was just a sad time because I felt like, you know, a CEO came in, um, you know, he, he uh, belittled uh, our ex-president in John Elliott, who I thought was there with all his heart and did everything that he possibly could for that club. And we signed over a deal to, you know, a stadium deal that I don't, I don't know how and what it occurred. So it was, a, it was a lot of mess at the football club at that stage. And I really disliked it because I was there the later part of my career. It wasn't about playing games for me. It was about making finals footy. I wanted to play more finals, and that's what I was there for. And there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, Dennis, who's a terrific coach, because, you know, under-19s, I was watching from afar, and he dominated the competition with his coaching. He was my two-cup coach when I made the All-Australian team back in 1990. He got the best out of me that carnival. You know, I went and watched it, you know, like seeing that he won a reserves uh, premiership also for the Essendon Football Club. Then became, you know, the best team, the team of the decade, at the Kangaroos North Melbourne Football Club when he was there. But unfortunately, Dennis, he said to me once, your strength can be, it becomes your weakness if you're not careful. And his strength was, his game plan was very basic. And as the game evolved, he couldn't keep up with what, you know, the game was becoming. And unfortunately, Dennis, he gave his all and gave everything. And uh, the days of coaching, you know, dictatorship, I think, were, are far gone. And you've got to become more like a player manager more so than, than dictator. And so the, the environment wasn't fun to be part of. And I said a lot of my ex-teammates leave the football clubs and, uh, you know, Carlton greats retire earlier than they should have. It was just a really tough time for me to be able to try to stand tall as a captain and give uh, our players hope when the game plan was very hard for us. The game's hard enough as it is. And if you don't create a fun environment to be at or look forward to an environment to go along and play, it's, it's difficult. AFL is the most difficult or hardest sport in the world. You get criticised from afar, like any sports people do. The people in the, in, in the stands, when they watch it, the 90,000 people, all they want to do is see you play good footy, but really don't understand how you're feeling up there in that as well. And I know I played my best footy when I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, Wayne Britton had this game plan that you know evolved around me, and I went out there and did... I would have ran through brick walls for him and John Elliott or David Parkin at that time. But unfortunately, Dennis... As the times and game evolved, he wasn't able to keep up the date. I can't criticise him for the, the amount of effort he put in. He was very professional in the way that uh, he went along and, and coached the football club. And he was actually, I found him very funny and, and good to talk to at times, but he was just, I guess, a little bit stuck in his old ways that if I went to him to say we need to do more kicking and things like that, he just really probably didn't really want to hear anything like that you know, from myself. So... Hard times, you know, I still wish Dennis all the best. I don't, you know, have any issues with him. Uh, I could have easily just written a book and not, you know, spoken about him 
but then I, I guess I would have felt a little bit guilty to the public to not be able to, you know, write it as honestly as I possibly could in the book. In hindsight, did I need all that extra adversity? No, I didn't. Uh, but I think it was important for people to know, you know, what was going on in the sanctum. And I know a lot of the other players agree with me that they probably just wouldn't come out and say it, and I wouldn't expect them to. Uh, because, you, you know, you're in a no-win situation. It wasn't like I was out there to go and win, you know, you know, support over for myself and turn him against Dennis because he's still going to have his supporters anyway. I think in end of the day, you, you know, you write an autobiography, you've got to be honest. And, um, you know, there's, it's, it's no point writing a, an autobiography that's based on all the, all the great moments purely because people actually want to read to understand how someone ticks in an autobiography. And any... Any autobiography of substance of anyone infamous, anyone famous, it's it's those those other sides which no one really gets an idea about are the ones that I suppose attract a fair bit of interest. It's interesting, Kim, how Kuda talks about, and if you look at the podcast, that that importance of just enjoyment in your workplace. You know, it's it's such an important thing. Doesn't matter if it's footy, doesn't matter if it's a chiropractic clinic or whatever it is. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? It's just, it's a very fundamental ingredient of success. Don't, don't you think? Well, they, yeah. They say that you you can only have a strength that you're good at and you enjoy. So if you're good at it but you don't enjoy it, it actually doesn't work out to be a strength. So you need those two factors involved to be to have success. And, I mean, yeah, and you know what, Kim and Paul, like people don't realise, like as footballers, and I, I didn't see myself as, you know, a role model or, you know, idolised by people, but that just, I guess, evolves when you become a footballer. But people don't see the amount of work that footballers do outside of the club too, you know, to go and visit kids at the children's hospital, you know, to see those sort of experiences. And people always ask me to do this and that and whatever. And I know I spent, in my book, I spent a lot of time with a girl who was suffering with cancer and she didn't want to get her uh, her treatment. Um, and the only way that she would get her treatment is if, you know, I went there myself to go and sit there and actually uh, for her to be able to do it. And, and a lot of us footballers go out of our way to help these sort of people out there who, you know, are suffering at that point in time too. So, you know, it's good and bad. We, we might get criticised a little bit here and there, but I know there's a lot of good that a lot of these professional sports people do also out there that people don't see. Well, people don't really understand a lot about it. I mean, you said before that the observers of the, the sports, whether it be AFL or any, any other sport, don't really understand what's going on in the minds of the athlete. And that can be a real challenge when you're copying all that criticism left, right and centre. So you get a lot of advantages of being an elite athlete, but there are also enormous mental and physical challenges. So what what advice would you give to up-and-coming adolescents who want to play elite AFL or any other sport for that matter when it comes to these kinds of challenges? I know this is that when I walked into the Carlton Football Club, I had to grow grow up. And, uh, you know, I was a very talented kid, so I, I probably didn't have to work as hard as some other people to get there. But what I did learn after my first year in 1991, because I didn't get a game that first year, but I looked around at some of the other players and leaders that I had there and watched and noticed how hard they trained over there and some of the little bits that they did extra over there. And I learned. I used to sleep in a lot, you know, and these are all little bits and pieces that, you know, anyone can do to get a little bit better. You know, getting yourself up early, getting yourself active, doing that little bit extra before training, doing a little bit extra after training. And that makes such a big difference for you in the way that you can go out and achieve and try to do the very best that you can. My advice is for young kids is to always believe no matter what happens through, uh, you know, things that are thrown at you. People will tell you you're not good enough. People will say you won't make it. It doesn't matter. 
Because if you've got something in your in your in your mind and something in your heart, and together if they're aligned, you can go out and achieve wonderful things. So in 1991, I didn't get a game. At the end of that season, I said to myself, "I've got to train a bit harder." I hit the weights really for the first time properly and put on about eight or nine kilos. I came back that next year to only play six games, but I won a reserves best and fairest because of the size that I put on. They played me a fullback, and I was one of those guys, I guess. It was the first athlete to come into the game. David Parkin didn't know where to play me. I played in every position, including ruck, and I'm a metre 90, but because I had that jumping ability as an athlete being a high jumper, I can go and ruck against people that were over two metres tall and, you know, even get a tap out and, and win the tap because of that reason. So 1992, I played six games. In 1993, I played eight games. And then 1994, I got dropped halfway through the year for two weeks, and I went to see a sports psychologist, and his name was Anthony Stewart. And he taught me these words, I can, I will, you just watch me. And I wrote those words down in my diary every single day and I highlighted it. And uh, those words there changed my life forever. And then two weeks later when I started playing senior footy again, he played me on the wing, David Parkin, and I was in the best place every single week after that. And from that point onwards, I never looked back. So, you know, the mind is such a, a strong thing for young kids. And no matter what people say, you just go out and if you can believe you can achieve anything. And all those little bits that you do extra can certainly help, but like what we touched on before, if you don't get up out of bed and love and look forward to what you're doing, it's going to be a long, hard struggle. Wow, I love those words, I can, I will, you just watch me. That's fantastic, and that is an inspiration. Is that what you used when you won uh, Seven Networks Dancing with Stars? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't, and that's that's another fascinating story, that one there, because when they first called me, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I really want to dance here. I've never danced with plenty of, you know, nightclubs on top of podiums, you know what I mean? Four one. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, Kurt, I know what you mean. giggle there. Yeah. Where yeah, you I? know, exactly. Yes. I don't know, I'm sorry, though, you missed out. But anyway, <laughs> not to worry. But I called up mum, like, like what I always said, mum, Channel 7 want me to be part of Dancing with the Stars, and that was one of their favourite start- shows. So she said, you're doing it. And being a good European boy, I said, all right, mum, no problem. <laughs> and I remember the night before the first dance, we had the Brownlow medal count, and I was there with my beautiful wife. We stayed over the Crown Casino. And uh, in the morning of the show, I actually switched on the television on Channel 7 on Sunrise, and about two or three minutes later, Koshi's gone, we've got the odds for Dancing with the Stars. And I thought being an AFL footballer, no doubt, I'd be able to, you know, be one of, if not a favourite, one of the favourites. But I looked at the top, it wasn't me, second, not me, third, not me. I was all the way down the bottom. I was the least favourite to win. (laughs) Yeah, so I know. I looked at my wife. I said, you know, I could be embarrassing to be the first one out. And she said, well, you're the fool who signed the contract. And I've gone, oh, God, here, thanks very much for your support. (laughs) So Uh, I went to the studio. Believe it or not, no one gets eliminated. It was one of the most uh, nerve-wracking experiences I've ever had in my life. To go out and think you're about to go and dance live in front of two million viewers across Australia, oh. which was almost ten percent of the population. Can you imagine that guy? Seriously. No, I can't that's imagine. Right. Yeah. That's right. So <laughs> once I got through the first dance, uh, I started to enjoy it a little bit more and, and somehow I got to the grand final. I don't know how I won, but I did. It was uh, I, I think I went from a, an atrocious dancer to an okay dancer and I think on a TV series they like that. So <laughs> I had, I'm sure people had many a laughs just watching me dance and even Todd McKenney said I'd dance like a tree trunk about three weeks before the uh, <laughs> grand final so I thought I had no hope Chris <laughs> Hemsworth the movie star juggernaut that earns multi-million dollars he was on my series also and he oh, was wow. favourite to win and got nominated in week seven good old Chris Hemsworth so. oh there you go 
Who was it? <laughs> and who was it down to, Kurt? Who were you against in the end? Well, uh, it was Ariane. She was a female world chess champion. She was a much better dancer than myself, but she started like on fire. So I guess you know the public was just expecting her to just dance good the entire way. So yeah, I was up. I got the perfect score in that last dance that I did. So I sat in that green room or blue room, whatever it was, and I was just on top of the world. Just wishing that this moment would never end. But guess what? That was 11 years ago now. So it did end. <laughs> well, you're a man of many talents. You've done other things too. You were a gladiator at one point. Yes. Kudu the Greek god, I believe they called you. So you've done a few things. But now, most recently, your newest venture is Kuda Fit. So tell yes. us a little bit about that and what that has to offer. Yeah, I've always been into the uh, fitness stuff. I've been you know, associated with a nutritional company in the last seven years, which has been the most incredible uh, ride for me also, you know, because when I finished footy, I was really lost, and I think a lot of players get lost at that time. I was racing from here and there thinking, what is it? What's going to be my next love and passion in life? I knew I had so many years left to, you know, well, hopefully live, but, you know, to work, uh, spend time with the kids, and uh, I found something that I did love. And through that association there, I, I got involved more with the fitness game as well. And, uh, you know, I'm training with a lot of PTs and different people and learning things all the time. And so my wife said to me about seven, eight months ago, she said, why don't you do something like this, like a fitness program? Because people come and train with me. They always say, Kuda, can I come and train? I say, yeah, come on, no problem. I'm, I'm open, no, no worries. But people, you know, now at the age 35, 40, 45, 50, you know, around our age, they're really struggling with their health. And they come to me and say, Kuda, how can I you know, look like you? How can I have a body like you? And it's not as simple as that. But we can still be young or look young if we do a little bit every day. And so what I've done is devise a program that people can just you know, basically work out from home in their own time. If it's in the morning, they want to, they can. Or if they get home from work and they've got you know, 20, 30 minutes, they can do it then. Even 10 minutes can make a difference. You're a mother with a, with a kid. You put your kid down. What do I do? You can go out and train on your own, but you're unsure. But if I, I'm going to put this uh, program together that they're going to love, they're going to enjoy, and they're going to get results, uh, they're going to get fitter, they're going to get healthier, and, of course, I've got nutritional ideas for them also. So it's for the, anyone, really. But I really want to target the, the people like myself. You know, uh, father, you've got busy, you know, you're working hard, you've got kids at home, we're time poor, but we've got to find a little bit of time for ourselves to be healthy. And I always value my health. Number one, when I see my father pass away, I knew then the importance of health, you know, because he's, you know, he he didn't really care too much about the family when he was ill because he was so ill, you know what I mean? Like he was was inside of himself and not his normal self. So I understood then. I looked at him and thought, wow, you're, you're health. You have to be healthy and happy in order to feed off the family. And that's, so hopefully this program here, not hopefully it will, for those that do commit, will be able to impact their life. And if they commit to it just for a little while, I'm going to teach them all the basics. I'm starting off basic. It'll be an intermediate plan. And then, of course, for those that want to get a little bit more serious, I'm going to get to that phase as well also. So I'm really looking forward to it, guys. And is this a, an online thing where you would subscribe and do a certain number of weeks? Is that the structure? Yeah. Yeah, so basically the plan is for a dollar you can you can sign up, you get two weeks free, and then it's up to you. You can cancel it if you, if you don't like it. If not, it'll be $49 a month after that. So it's very good value. You're going to get options for, for a nutrition side also. You can do it outside on the computer. You can do it inside, you know, and connect it onto your television and watch it from there. But it is an online website subscription. So you can take it overseas with you if you want to, even work it your, your mobile phone. You can get access to that anywhere. 
There's going to be Pilates on there, core, stretching. I'm going to have other fun activities. I'm going to talk to them every week. So I'm going to build the community with them for support and, uh, yeah, try to impact uh, thousands of people across Australia and abroad. This sounds great. I think it's going to be perfect for me, actually. When when do you launch? Right, it should be launching uh, December 1, so in December uh, coming. So I'm looking forward to that. Fantastic. Watch for my name. <laughs> yes, I, I will. I'll push up. I'll have a photo with you saying, there's my first subscriber to Cuda Fit. Yeah, Paul's got way more time, Kuda, way more time. Oh, no way oh, to use this, mate. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. right. That's what everyone says to me. Yes, that's right. They've got plenty of time. So, you know, they've got plenty of time. Get up at 11 a.m. and uh, get up, you know. He swans in and out of the gym, Kuda. He's got all the time in the world. You know. I noticed that. Don't worry. But me, me, I need something from home, so that would be fantastic because by the time I get home at whatever time it is, it's no time for anything, so that's perfect. And actually, you know, we're – So just like being at PT at home for you. There you go. Yes. We're sorry to interrupt you. No, I was, I was just going to say, I mean, uh, we didn't plan all this, but in actual fact, Kim is your perfect sort of target market, Kuda, because of the fact she's full-time, she's got kids at home, she's managing all their needs, and, uh, yeah, she would be absolutely yeah. perfect. You should be your prototype yeah. first, Kuda Fit person. <laughs> and I, yeah, if I look forward to that, there's my first one done and dusted. Yeah, first time. It was easy. It was easy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's simple as that. Simple as that. And I like one thing. I, th- I think checking on your uh, website, uh, Kuda, where it talks about um, the trilogy of things that you look at for for well being, fitness, and you talk about exercise, nutrition, and you mentioned mindset and how putting those all three together is an important component. I think you see, and I know for, as a chiropractor. When we see patients, for instance, who are overweight, they might see maybe a, a dietitian or naturopath just for nutrition and, and they don't get the sort of exercise elements sort of looked after. Then they might see a personal trainer or exercise physiologist, but then they don't look at their food and sometimes they may look at if they've got addictive food problems, they might go see a psychologist or um, a counsellor, but then they don't address the exercise and the, and the food components. So you're sort of looking like it's a fairly holistic package is what you're providing with CudaFit. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think if you want to achieve the best out of yourself, you've got to you know have all those three components there. Uh, the fitness part is going to be important, but if your nutrition lacks, then you're going to fail on that side. But the mindset part is important also. Like you've got to have goals. You know, how do you how, how do you see yourself? You know, your vision of yourself. Now, people will start a program and go through it four weeks and go, oh, I haven't had a result. Well, haven't you? Okay, maybe not on the scales because my body after footy. Uh, on the scales, I, I weigh basically almost the same, 98, 99 kilos. I look skinnier, I'm leaner, but all it's done is really reshaped. So the mindset part is going to be important for people to be able to push through. I know this, that if they can continue on and uh, where this becomes a daily part of their life, then at 12 months' time, they're going to feel and look so much different to what they were previous. So if they don't see the results straight away, that's not important. So the mindset's going to be a big one for us, but the support's going to be important also. But it's important also to do some mindset activities every single day, a little bit of personal development, maybe a video here and there that I can help them with to get that little bit of motivation if people are lacking. They're going to go through tough times like we all do. All do. We're all human beings, professional athletes, successful business people, no matter who you are, we're going to go through some tough times where you hit a wall, you go, what do I do here? Well, you know what? If you really want to, you'll find a way to be able to push through that wall. And so that's what I'm going to be there. I'm going to mentor them. 
support them and help them towards their goals and whatever it is that they want to achieve. It may take time, but I know at the end we can certainly achieve great results because I've done that in the past. Fantastic. Now we've sold. Sold indeed. Now we've tracked you through your whole career here, Kudit, <laughs> through the 90s and the 2000s, and now we've come towards the end of the podcast. Can you give our listeners on Backchat perhaps three take-home messages? Uh, the three take-home, I think I spoke about them before, like we're going to hit walls and obstacles. You're going to just have to push through them. You're going to be a better person for it once you overcome them. And we can't give in to all these little uh, curveballs that life throws into you. Find something you love with a passion so you look forward to getting up every single day. And, uh, you know, we're only here for a short period of time. I remember one stage I was young. Now all of a sudden I'm in my 40s. I'm like, oh, my God, where's time gone? So we've got to find something that you love and looking forward to do with a passion. And I think, you know, um, and you've got to have fun in life. You know, you've got to laugh. You've got to have a little bit of fun. As serious as we want to be. Life is about, you know, enjoying that journey no matter what, what happens. Excellent. Now, finally, could if you can just talk to us, perhaps a pivotal moment in your life, and yeah, we always like to sort of end our podcast talking about this with our talent because a lot of people might be listening to this podcast to look back at your history as a current footballer, but there also may be things that they've picked up as well that they can sort of take on board themselves in their own personal lives. Is there one particular moment that you'd like to share? I think my father's death, no doubt is, and I think that commitment I made to him. But those words, I can and will you just watch me, impacted me enormously also. So I'd say I can or will you just watch me. And when I went out with that mindset that training, it was a, it was a different cooter out there. You know, if the, my focus was on marking, I wasn't going to drop the ball. I went out there with a the focus and it made such a big difference for me. And I never looked back after that. So I highlighted that in my diary and that's the sort of part of mindset also. So I think, you know, find words that impact you and highlight them every day and say to yourself 50, 100 times a day and that positivity will come through your mind and uh, you, you will change as a person and people around you will notice that also. Fantastic. Kim, what do you think? I, I love it. I think I, I can, I will, you just watch me. It's going to go up on my wall, I think. I'm going to get more that sticker. And that's where You've been a good start. support, Kim. Thank you, darling. You've been a good support throughout this podcast. <laughs> Well, I'm expecting you to get me fighting fit, Kuda. See, I'm going to be what, – what did you say? I'm going to look thinner and leaner and stronger. So, you know, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I don't know if I said that, Kim, but I'm on board. Kuda Phil will deliver, that's for sure. So for further information, you can go to www.anthonykudafides.com. So that's Anthony with Kudafides spelled K-O-U-T-O-U-F-I-D-E-S, Kuda, that's right. Correct. Correct, Wade. Fantastic. Excellent. So thanks, thanks, Kuda, for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. And, of course, if people want to follow me on social media too, on Instagram, Anthony Kuda Feeders and Kuda Fit, and also my fan Facebook page, I'll do a heap of videos on there too. Feel free to follow me on there. Thanks, Paul and Kim. I appreciate your time. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Kuda. Thanks, Kim, as well. Thank you to some Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat Podcast. 
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.